You're listening to the Sparrows and Wildflowers podcast. Stories of faith, love, life, loss, and eternity. Welcome to the first episode of Sparrows and Wildflowers. I'm excited to have you listening today. This podcast is going to be a wonderful series of really different and really interesting conversations with individuals. So to kick off, let me just get a bit philosophical for a minute and talk to you about where this name came from. The name Sparrows and Wildflowers alludes to how every single person on the planet that is and was has an incredible inherent value in them. I got the name from verses in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, and it talks in those verses about how God's eyes on the sparrow, how he cares for their life, and it talks about flowers in the fields and how they're more beautiful than the richest king in history. And God's eye is on them, not because of their own efforts of striving or what they have or haven't done, but because he places value on them. And then this crazy comparison's drawn, you know, a flower withers within two days and two sparrows are sold for like a penny. So how much more valuable is a human being? So this podcast is about highlighting, exploring and celebrating that. So I'm going to start by saying as well that I'm not going to agree with everything that every interviewee has to say and probably neither will you. In fact, you might not actually agree with much they say at all. But that's exactly what this is about. This is about that individual, what they think, how they do things, what they believe and their journey. So my hope is that whether you yourself are of Christian faith, you might be of another faith, you may be agnostic or atheist, my hope is that this will be really entertaining and interesting content that you'll enjoy listening to and find value in. There are a lot of great podcasts and photography projects and so forth that are out there sharing people and their stories from different angles, and I absolutely love that. And for this podcast specifically, Sparrows and Wildflowers, I'm choosing to interview people that are of Christian faith. I'm doing that because there's a truth and a beauty there that I want to share with you, but also because there's so much diversity across the Christian community, and I think that there's a depth and also a breadth in terms of people's views and who they are as people, there's not something that's necessarily always well expressed or well heard across the broader community. So I'm going to be interviewing Christians from all different walks of life, different denominations, ages, nationalities, points of view. Some are going to be more prominent figures and most are just going to be everyday people. The idea of creatively sharing people's stories for me formed in the final year of uni when I decided to share someone's story as an experimental documentary for my major work. I remember sitting on public transport and just looking around and thinking, you know what, everyone's got a story to tell. And I thought, whose story will I tell? And I couldn't get the idea of my friend, mentor, wonderful person, Gail Sinclair, out of my head. And when I asked Gail if she'd do the documentary, it was instantly a yes, because she's just so generous of spirit. And Gail is so kind. She's worked to bring people out of poverty for the last several years. She's got an amazing relationship with Jesus. She's got a crazy, interesting past. She is so wonderful. And at the moment, Gail's not well, and she's just handling this time with such faith and such grace and such beauty and it's a real inspiration to everyone around her. So I thought seeing as Gail's was the first story that I had the privilege to tell that it would be fitting to dedicate the first episode of the podcast to her. So Gail, you're an inspiration and love you lots. So to all the listeners, if you find that you're enjoying listening to the podcast, then please do subscribe and share it around with others. So moving on to today's episode... We're really lucky to have as our very first guest, Catherine Bradshaw. I've actually known Kath for many years. We're chatting off air and I think we met about 16 years ago now. Kath was the children's pastor at the church that I actually go to in Sydney, a Pentecostal church, for many of those years. She is a really bright personality. Bright's kind of the word that came to mind for me because she's bright as in she's vivacious. She's kind of loud. She's fun. She's funny. But she's also bright as in she's super intelligent, she's knowledgeable and she's creative. So in this discussion, we talked about all kinds of things. We talked about growing up in Sydney in the 70s, what's changed for kids now and what it was like being a mum of three under three eventually herself. 
We spoke about going from being a kind of naughty kid to being a teacher. We spoke about feminism, Kat's passionate quest for knowledge, and articulating faith in the 21st century. We discussed revelation from God and what that actually looks like in practical terms for her. We talked about the refugee debate in Australia and specifically the role of online activism. We spoke about Kath's diagnosis with MS and we talked about contentment, living in the moment, as well as aspirations for the future. So here's my conversation with Kath Bradshaw. I grew up in Artarman. Oh, did you? In Sydney. I'm a Sydney girl. Okay. Born and bred. My mother has um, Irish-Italian background mm-hmm. and my father was Italian. Okay. So I think that's been a significant influence yeah, in my personality. Yeah, um, When I went to Italy and when I went to Ireland, I suddenly made sense to myself mm. because uh, I think in terms of my personality... Um, the fact that I can't talk without using my hands. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like now. Um, I, I just think a sensibility, if that makes sense, like, uh, you know, a love of food and culture and people and that I'm very tactile and yeah. all those sorts of things are very mm. much part of, I think, an Italo-Celtic background. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think that was really interesting growing up in suburbia, suburban Australia. Like we were so free, like we'd just go down to the bowling club and pinch chocos and 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 the little man that used to mow the bowling green would chase us away and then we'd, we'd play down drain pipes at the wow. Atawan Reserve and, uh, you know, drive our Malvern Star bikes and it was just really like my kids have not had that, I think, growing up these yeah. days, you know, and then you just hear one of the mothers would say dinner or come home and you'd come home and you'd spend hours just yeah, running riot. What do you think? In stormwater drains. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. What do you think sort of made the major differences there? I think, I think more of an awareness of what can go horribly wrong. Mm. I think we've become really frightened in our child rearing. Mm. Um, I've been interested in that idea, like have have the dangers become more or is it that people are... That we're more, more aware, aware of it. Or, or more worried or... I think the dangers have become more. Mm. But then again, yeah, I mean we've got access to so much media and and nothing's secret. Yeah, true. And is That's that why true. we're slightly, you know, I, th- I think I know I was much more fearful as a parent, you know, yeah. with my kids riding bikes down the street and... You know, I'm just, I'm really aware that they just didn't have, you know, we'd take the bike to the park, mm. you know, and they'd drive around the park and then you'd put them back in the car and you'd come home, you know. It wasn't this sort of roaming that we did. Yeah. Yeah. And were you a kid that loved school? Like, I, th- I did. I think mm. I did. I-, I loved the social aspect of school mm-hmm. and I loved, you know, drama I loved English, but I think it took me a while to get going. I was a bit naughty, I think. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I wasn't, I wasn't, um, I was just really talkative and a bit cheeky, but I went to a Catholic school mm-hmm. and the nuns were terrifying. So if you had a nun, you never marked up. But I had a, a really inspiring teacher in fourth grade and sixth grade called Mr Shanley and I wrote to him, until he died and I still remember his birthday was November the 7th and I sent him a birthday card every year until I'd left school and I was at university and travelled overseas, finally got to Oxford, said I'm doing a course here, Um, it's thank you so much, you inspired me and then his wife wrote to me and said he died. So he died before he got that letter. Anyway, so but I gave him heaps. I was was just, I was cheeky and talkative (laughs) and so... um, but I did, I, I think I, I loved the learning environment, but I think I really hit my straps, you know, senior years and and then at university. Um, and was that got, love of education and all that? I think learning, family? learning. Yeah. Because um, the, the current job I'm in, we have been surveyed by, now who are those big survey people? There's, anyway, there's, they do the polling all the time. Um, 
I can't think of their names. Isn't that mm, dreadful? But know. anyway, they they come in and ours is a test school for mm. a new strength-based learning model. So instead of focusing on what you can't do, because I was absolutely hopeless at maths mm. and hopeless at art, like drawing. I loved art but I couldn't do it. Yeah. And I remember a third grade teacher telling me, not to bother illustrating my projects because my drawings were so bad. <laughs> oh, it's rough. It's so mean. I never do that to my students. Anyway, mm. um, mind you, I think we've kind of flipped the other way, I think, where it's, everyone's yeah. also, you are so fabulous, so fabulous. And it's like, well, actually, no, it's mm. not your strength. But anyway, this is strength-based learning. So the kids do a survey on what are their strengths. So, of course, we got tested and one of my strengths is um, input and ideation. Actually, they're two strengths, input ideation, which is that quest for knowledge, that quest for learning. Like I'm constantly mem- like learning quotes or, or cutting bits out of the paper and writing things down and mm. some sort of like a bowerbird for information. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. And so you mentioned a little bit about being in Catholic school. What are your early memories of God or, or of religion? Really positive. Mm. Uh, my mother was the organist for a, a big... Catholic Church in the city, St okay. Pat's, which yeah. is one of the oldest churches in Sydney. And my grandparents that lived here, because Dad's family lived in South Australia, um, very prayerful. And my father, my grandfather worked for St Vincent de Paul and Matt Talbot. And uh, so prayer, I always remember them praying the rosary or, you know, um, if we had stayed weekends there, you know, we'd pray with them and we'd go to Mass. We went to Mass but mum being the organist, she did weddings on a Saturday. And so we'd just have our lunch boxes packed and we'd be at the church every Saturday because mm. my father was in the Merchant Navy, so he was away. Okay. There was no choice. So we just mm. spent weekends in church. But I remember being terrified of the pipe organ because they like the big pipes and it made this kind of, you know, <laughs> sort of you expected like a vampire to rise up from somewhere. <laughs> but um, I just remember feeling like really being in awe of God and having a sense of, of of mystery and that I loved God. Really? Mm. Wow. Mm. And where do you think that came from? I think it came from my parents. My um, my mum was more practising than dad. Um, though dad, hi dad, <laughs> I love my dad, love my mum. But dad, dad was a, sort of always a bit, um, I think my parents grew up when when Catholicism was quite dour and it was very much sort of punishment. You know, well, I think I think you know Christian faith and I was you know punishment and you must do this and you must do that. See, I didn't grow up with that. I grew up sort of post Vatican II, which is when the Catholic Church completely changed. But you know, Dad sort of said to me, oh, of course I believe in God. You can't stand out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean watching dolphins and whales and albatrosses and, and nature and the waves and not think that there's a creator. So mm. I think it was just instilled. But my, my grandparents on my mother's side were very devout, prayerful, and I saw genuinely spiritual people. So mm. I think that makes a big impression on people whether they've seen what seems to be genuine yeah. versus what seems to yeah. be putting on a face. Yes. And so in terms of your career, like what sort of set you on that path? Uh, I initially wanted to be a, a, a doctor. A medical in, doctor. A medical doctor mm. in primary school and I did all my projects on the human body and everything and then suddenly realised that I was really squeamish <laughs> and I couldn't do maths to save my life. Was there a bad experience <laughs> that made you realise that? No, 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 no. Although, you know, dissecting, we, we used to, we were in the days where you could actually dissect, you know, rats at school. And Don't they do that anymore? No. Um, I think I think it's like everything's so sanitised. I could be wrong, but I my memory is that you don't. Did you do kidney? Yeah, we did. did the whole rat. Ooh. <laughs> um, and I just remember the smell of it and oh, I gosh. thought, oh, I can't do this. But um, yeah. And then, then I realised, no, I, I, but I said, I was so disastrous at maths. So, mm. um, and then of course my love of of literature. Um, but but I thought that I'd I would do, be be a lawyer, mm-hmm. and then went to university, did English history. Um, decided, look, I'll string this law thing out. I'll do a dip ed because I wanted to travel. So I thought I'll travel with a teaching degree, and mm-hmm. and then realised that I'm actually a born teacher. Mm. So there was no escaping it, and I never finished my law degree. Okay. 
And you went to university in England? No, I went to Sydney University. Sydney. I went here. Okay. But I did a drama course in England. Okay. Um, because part of my master's research, I did the history of the Royal Shakespeare Company. Wow. Uh, their version of um, Cleopatra, Antony and Cleopatra. Mm-hmm. So I did a whole, I was really into feminism. So mm-hmm. it was a big feminist reading of the play and uh, it was going to be, a, I wanted to go on and do a PhD, but um, God had other plans for me. Yeah. That's a very... That's another story. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And just lingering on that um, Shakespeare and what you did there, did you ever see yourself as a performer or more on the other side? I was really interested in acting and everyone thought I'd become an actress because I was a bit of a drama queen at school. <laughs> I was more a comedian, I think. You know, I was always yeah. mucking around. Um, but then I suddenly realised, no, I... Um, I think I'm more interested in studying it and Mm. I honestly think that I was such a self-conscious teenager, like I was full of um, bravado Mm. but I I was painfully self-conscious about what I looked like. Right. I I sort of had this idea that I'm not the quintessentially good-looking girl Mm. so actresses have to be beautiful and they have to be thin and so you know I went through all of that you know I really struggled with you know I went through a phase of of, you know probably having an eating disorder and I I think it was an absolute lack of confidence Mm. I just thought and I think I think spiritually too I felt that that world would be very compromising okay and um I just thought I, I don't think I can immerse myself in that world. Like I did lots of student theatre and, and things like that. Yeah. Uh, but I kind of thought, look, you know, deep down I think I was probably really frightened to give it a go because mm. I'd, I'd fail or I, I, I didn't feel like I had the necessary requirements sort of thing. Mm. So. And was there something that got you out of that thinking or is that something you kind of struggle with ongoing? Um. I think what got me out of that thinking was, I think, finding God, mm. like like on a really personal level. Like I'd grown up a Catholic. I really believed in God. I'd never not believed in God. There's times where I've railed against God. I've ignored him. Um, I've done my own thing. Um, but there's, I've, I've never said there's no God. Like mm. I could never say that I've been atheist at all. Mm. I explored sort of Eastern religions. I, I kind of didn't realise that... Um, that they that, that they were different. Um, it wasn't until sort of my sort of late teens, early 20s where, you know, I had that real um, personal conversion experience and I just think getting to know God and, you know, God just let me go on my leash for a while, like <laughs> had me on the leash but an elastic band I'd say, not a mm-hmm. leash, an elastic band and just let me go and then just sort of, you know, pulled and said you're going in the wrong direction so I think it was getting to know God I think it was um um a couple of wrong relationships and then Richard had been a friend of mine all along and I think probably meeting him like we'd been friends at school funnily enough he went to the Catholic boys school um and I probably think meeting someone that just loved and accepted me for me Mm. And with none of that baggage or none of that you have to be this kind of woman or look this way, I think that was very freeing. Yeah. So how did you guys end up getting together? <laughs> it's such a long story. Oh, is, that- <laughs> is this part one? Do we do part two? No, joke. Um, I guess we met at school. We met, mm. we met at debating of all things and um, Richard was a chairperson and I was on the team opposing their school and he just kept making funny, drawing funny pictures on the cards and trying to put us three debating girls off. <sighs> so he had a really good sense of humour. I thought he absolutely hated me at school. Because oh, um, we'd, 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 no, <laughs> he'd, we'd meet outside Willoughby Library in the morning like it was, you know, you know, there we all met, and the pious boys and the Catholic girls. And um, um, oh, he was always just so, um, he's sort of, you know, sardonic or not sardonic as much as... Uh, cynical sense of humour. So I thought, oh, he just really doesn't like me, does he? Anyway, <laughs> um, and he was not a Christian at the time. And mm-hmm. then through the grapevine in year 12, he became a Christian and the change in him was overwhelming actually. 
Okay. Um, and then we actually got talking to each other the night of our formal. We went with different people. And then just afterwards we got talking at the after party. <laughs> and then he said, oh, I want to go to Sydney Uni. I said, oh, so do I. And then saw each other across the quadrangle. And he still remembers what dress I was wearing. Oh, isn't that just <laughs> lovely? And we probably were friends for 10 years before any romance. We went overseas together because a wow. friend of mine pulled out. Yeah. And we were just mates, really good friends. Mm. And then all of a sudden... I think it was God's timing, really. He said, okay, you're ready for each other now. And that's it. So it probably took 10 years, 10 years in the making. Everyone says wow. it's like with, when Harry met Sally without the cafe scene. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. And so in amongst all that, where did you sort of find God, as you put it, for yourself? Um, I, I think... I think I was always, you know, searching for mm. God, like always wanting meaning and a purpose for things. Mm. So probably the journey started, um, um, I, I got into a relationship after school and when that fell to pieces, I think that was a real shock for me and um a friend invited me round to dinner at her house and she'd moved in with a shared house and there were guys and I thought, oh, great, I'll go. And uh, funnily enough, it was the house that Richard was sharing. <laughs> and um, um, a, a guy turned up who's now senior pastor of my church mm. and, unbe- you know, would have had no idea the thoughts that had been running through my head and just walked in and, and met me and he said, you're really looking for God, aren't you? And I just went. You know, I just burst into tears. Oh, wow. So by the end of that night, I'd uh, given my life to the Lord. I had all these people praying for me. I thought, what is this? This is just really weird because that had not been my experience as as a Catholic. Yeah. Um, so then I started going to a, um, like their kind of prayer group. Um, they were a community that they'd got together to serve the poor in Sydney. Yeah. So I ended up joining that community and... Um, you know, through that found, you know, that that I really wanted to have a really committed life and a committed relationship with God. But, yeah. you know, I just see that God just weaves his way through your life, even if you're not aware. Mm. You, you, you look back and you just see God just, just moving you and, um, you know. And then my big epiphany was when I went and did this course in England and, um I was sitting in the Bodleian Library in Oxford because we were allowed to go and read there and I just sort of prayed. I just remember sitting there feeling really empty, thinking I've always wanted to get to this place, I've always wanted to do this, I feel really empty and I just a thought came across my mind, if only I loved reading the Bible as much as I loved studying Shakespeare and it happened. Like just sort of and then I realised that what I was investing my energy in was really not me and that God said, you know, this is this is who you are, you know. You, mm. you don't need that PhD to make you feel worth it. You don't need those sorts of things. Um, so that's, that was kind of like the journey for me. And so then I came back and just was teaching. I did my Master's in Literature, finished that off, mm. decided not to pursue the higher, um, to go any higher with that. Just taught, got married, had my kids started studying theology. Um, I've had to give that up just for a little while, but when I get my last kid through the HSC, I want to go back, um, nice. continue studying in that area. I'm really interested in, I think, how we articulate faith in the 21st century has to be very different to how we've done it before. Oh, yeah. So I'm fascinated by um, how I can do that. Mm. That's really interesting. Mm. What do you think um, are the kind of marks of difference of this century? I think because we're postmodern relativist, Mm -hmm. what we thought was absolute, people just don't think that anymore. Mm. Um, You know, we are secular. Um, Yeah, I I just think like a way of thinking, a worldview has shifted and I don't think Christian... Um, language shifted with it in a way. I think we make a lot of assumptions and there's a whole generation coming through that don't have any knowledge of that. Mm. You know, I think we make assumptions, you know, 20th century assumptions and I just see from when I started teaching to now, I started, what, in 1990, 
to 2015, like the quantum leap has just been extraordinary and I just find, I just can't assume that kids have a basic knowledge of, of a Christian worldview. Mm, absolutely. I remember um, in high school we walked into the Catholic Church and we would had a friend who was um, part of the Sikh religion and she'd just joined us at school and walking into the Catholic Church, she saw the crucifix and said, oh, yuck, like, mm. what's that? And mm. thought, oh, that's so interesting. Like even a religious person doesn't have knowledge of that. And, mm. yeah, to, I was talking to a little kid once who was very distressed about their brother had been lost at the beach earlier that day and they couldn't sleep because of the anxiety from it. And I said, oh, I'll say a little prayer for you. And they they said, what's that? Mm. Like, no no concept of God for that one at all. So, yeah, it's different to how it would have been a few years back. And I think sure. sort of science, technology, I, don't, I, I think it's really sad that we assume that if you're scientific you can't be a person of faith mm. when if you really look at how science began, you know, it's in the monasteries of medieval Europe mm. and it wasn't about disproving God, it was about discovering greater depths of God right. and then how... You know, really it's the Enlightenment. It was the 18th century, which mm. you said we're such rational human beings, we don't need to believe in anything other than ourselves. And I think so much of what we believe now is is really only about 200 and something years old. Oh, okay. You know, in terms of that yeah. sort of mind shift. Right, you know, yeah. And then you have rise of your Dawkins and Hitchens, you know, your new atheists and mm-hmm. um, I think rattling everyone's cage and... Um, I think I think I think our well when I say our I'm I'm probably speaking from my experience is that I think we get quite threatened and so we feel like we've got to sort of keep explaining God or defending God or mm-hmm. and I just think no I I, I I think if we show God um, I think people will see that there's something different about Christianity in its outworking. Mm-hmm. Because you can't deny history. Christianity has been attached to some pretty awful things. But then yeah. so is atheism. Like yeah. if you look at the 20th century, everyone says, oh, more people, you know, all wars are religious wars. And I said, well, the greatest casualties were in secular war. Right. I mean, you look at, you know, you look at World War One, World War Two, mm. and they weren't religious wars. Mm. More people were killed in, you know, what is it, um, um, three years of the French Revolution, which was a secular war, then in 30 years of Irish Catholic, you know, the Irish, Northern Irish you mm-hmm. know, Catholic conflict. Yeah. Um, so I think there's a lot of misunderstanding. Um, mm. But then I also think that Christians haven't explained themselves well mm-hmm. or haven't accounted for themselves well. And, and I think we get judged really harshly because of what we say we believe in. Yeah. For sure. We leave ourselves no margin for error in lots of ways. Mm. And I'm interested also in your feminism that you touched on before. Mm. Can you talk about your journey with that and and how you, that you're thinking now as well? Sure. Um, oh, I was, wow, I was, you know, an angry feminist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I think I really embraced feminism in my teens because I felt really angry about um the expectations placed upon women, their looks, the fact that there were things that women couldn't do. There was, you know, disadvantage in jobs um, in the church. Um, And then I think when I came to faith in Christ, I had a, like a revelation that um, it was kind of inevitable that there's going to be brokenness between men and women because of the fall of man and one of the consequences of that was that men and women would be at each other and I think you know without God in there there will be elements of brokenness and I think um, I got my identity through my relationship with God then that's not to say that it still doesn't hurt you know, I, I think the tyranny of beauty, you know, that women are constantly described, well, in, in, you know, how they look. You know, and we say to girls, oh, you look beautiful, you know. And, um, sometimes I think, oh, I wish we could just not do that. I think Bono, there's a, there's a new song on their album and I can't think of the name of, of the song, but it basically said you've got a face unspoilt by beauty 
And mm. I think what he's talking about there is that you're not, you know, it's not the first thing I see when I see you. You know, I want to see your heart. Mm. Um, but I think that there's an element of male-female relationships since the fall which are going to have that unfortunate level of inequality. Um, I think that what the suffragettes did was so necessary, I think, sort of the whole feminist movement to get, you know, equal wages, pay, um, you know, girls. I mean, it's appalling to think that you could go to university and not to, in Cambridge till the 20s and even then you could not take a degree. Really? They wouldn't give women the degree. Like, I mean, that's just outrageous, you know, mm. and I think, you know, as, you know, we talked off air about you know the, what's happening with domestic violence like what's going on you know what, what, why does this happen so um, you know my only concern is that um, when I was looking at sort of third wave feminism is that I think there was a time there where to want to just stay at home and be a mum with your kids was not considered valid or important enough that you could be the super mum and go out and have everything and but what if you don't um, so I think what feminism was supposed to do was about options. It was about you can do all of these things and if you choose to do that, then that's okay. So I think if we don't sort of throw the baby out with the bathwater, um, you know, if you want to be a stay-at-home mum, I think that's fantastic. If you wanted to do this, then that's great. Um, I think kind of putting all of that pressure on women to sort of have it all can be sometimes I think there's a real tension there um, and I'm speaking from a work as a working mum. He was studying, working, raising children, you know, breastfeeding <laughs> the works. So if anyone's listening and they go, oh, my gosh, I don't agree with her. Uh, I was speaking personally in that, you know, I tried to do everything and be everything and I was superwoman and I just wanted to stay at home. There were times I just wanted to be with my, my babies, you know. I had a goal in my head by 30 I wanted to be a head of department yeah. in a school and I got that. And I didn't take it because I wanted to be at home with my children. My girls were nine months old. Um, I didn't want to put them into care. That's my choice. I realised that some people don't have that choice. Uh, we did it really tough on one income, but I just thought, I just want to be here, you mm. know. And, you know, we've discussed it, but he said, yep, you, there's things you can't let go of that, you know, I can. And he sort of sees that out of necessity because, you know, um, both my pregnancies were really difficult. I had to lie flat, you know, to be able to make sure that those babies were brought into the world safely. Oh, right. He had to decompartmentalise, go off to work, keep being the breadwinner so that he yeah. could come home and look after us. So mm. I don't know. I don't know if that's going to be controversial. And it just it, it concerns me that um, I, I think we've come so far in the developing world but I look at the developed, sorry, we're the developed, aren't we? Yeah, the developing world and I think... There are women, young girls still being circumcised, still being married off, um, who have no freedom, who um, are not educated and I feel our responsibility as Western women is to now look to those cultures to give them and the, the empowerment that we have, which isn't perfect but that they desperately need more than what they have. So you talked a bit about your pregnancy. So you're a mum of twins for your first birth and, and then, girls and then a boy. Yep. Can you talk about being a mum and twins in particular? And um, There's nothing like it. Um, there's a scripture that, you know, Mary, it says Mary pondered these things in her heart. And I, I always wondered about that scripture and now I'm a mum I absolutely know, you know, that, you bring a child into the world and most of the focus is getting that baby out, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> they don't kind of prepare you for anything that's to follow. They don't prepare you about what you'll ponder in your heart and that you'll lie awake at night worrying about the bully at the preschool or the the one that didn't get the part in the play and, you know, you um you sort of think about that, you know, each stage of life brings its challenges and so you worry for them. You know, the girls are doing their HSC, they've got two exams left, you know. But then the next stage of their life, you know, mm. they get into the degrees they want to do, their job, relationships, you know. So so for a mother it's just like this never-ending, you can't take long service leave. <laughs> <laughs> um, their birth, like the girl's birth was pretty miraculous because I, I went in for a miscarriage and, um, and um, we prayed 
and Richard and I really did surrender and said, look, Lord, if this is not the time for us to have children, you know, we'll see these little people. One, We didn't know it was people. We thought it was a person um, in heaven one day. And then we, um, our senior pastor, uh, she prayed for us and got a word from Mark about the, the little girl, Jairus's daughter, and she said, um, she's not dead, she's asleep. And so we, we took that to mean, you know, that could mean anything. You know what I mean? Like yeah. we're going to see that little face in eternal life. Like it was just very, it was really comforting for us. Mm. Uh, it turned out to be actually true because when we went for the ultrasound before I was going to go in and have a procedure, you know, mm. curette, because um, they thought that there was no life, um, there were two little heartbeats on the screen. Wow. So I went from one to two. So, and then it was fraught with, you know, I had to lie flat for about 20 weeks. Yeah. Um, so that I wouldn't miscarry or just, you know, and then they're born at 36 weeks. Oh, just magnificent. And it was such a challenge. You know, mm. two babies. Yeah. But I didn't know anything else. Yeah. Um, and then James came along. Well, I had three under three. Under three. It's just challenging. Wow. Yeah. But, <laughs> but but really and I sort of sort of touching on the feminist thing again. I think that to really embrace that part of being a woman is to me um really necessary and important. That's empowerment, you know? Mm. And um which is why I I, I do get upset about you know like the planned pregnancy thing because so many women who can't have children you know and people say it's it's you know it's but it's their bodies I think well actually what's just happened inside of me is a complete miracle and it's it's over and beyond me that is something so sacred who the heck are we to to muck muck around with that right so yeah, yeah. if I was sort of Sitting on the fence about sort those sorts of issues before I, being a mum, I can't. I can't even imagine not yeah. having my three. Mm, all so different as well. I know. <laughs> and you always think I've done it wrong. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but would you do it any differently? You, you you do what you do at the time with who you are mm. and make the best of it, and then pray that God covers a multitude of sins. <laughs> <laughs> well, love does. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I was interested as well in um, I've heard some of your poetry and some of your stories and there's a lot of humour in those and that's something I've seen you um, share in a church context. Can you talk about those? And Sure. Yeah. Um, uh, they're kind of monologues because um, mm. they don't sort of fit into that sort of, you know, poetry in terms of rhythm rhyme, though they're not stories as such because of the way they're structured. But um the very first one I wrote was about the girls mm. um, and having to breastfeed twins in the middle of the night and I did it for a Mother's Day and the girls would have been a year old, I think. And um, basically it's, 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 it's a, I get a revelation. I always get the ending um, and then I work, you know, I know what the end is before, mm. when I start and... I like to start with kind of just humour of my daily life or my daily experience because, you know, sometimes this world is so random and daily life is so random mm. that you've got to see the funny side or you just, <laughs> it just collapse. So it just went from there and that, you know, I do one at sometimes at Mother's Day and then maybe at Easter and one at Christmas and I found that they were messages that God was giving me or preparing me throughout the year. And so they, they always started off with an anecdote, of something that had happened to me, and then the revelation that God had given me through that anecdote or that experience. So mm. they kind of start with the quirky scenario and always end with the revelation that God had given me. And so for people that perhaps are not religious themselves or don't feel God giving them revelations like what does that actually look like for you if God gives you a revelation um well I think God gives revelations to people all the time they're just not aware that it's mm. God I think every inspired work of art every um 
you know, beautiful building, every magnificent scientific experiment that's making someone's life better is is in spite of God. It is God. Um, Whether you identify that God has given you that revelation or not, it's still God. Every good and perfect thing comes from him. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think it's just, I think, um, I think because I intentionally sit and I will be reading scriptures or I'll be having, you know, my prayer time with my cup of tea. Um, and it's just like a, a sort, of, sort of like a sense that doesn't leave you, like an idea gets in your head and before you know it you've written stuff down and 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 then it connects to what, what scriptures you've been reading or what's been happening in your life or what insight you've been given. So it's very, look, it's not, you know, the heavens part and the angels appear with trumpets. Mm. It's, um, or, the, or have you seen Monty Python, Holy Grail? Mm, you yes. know, how that God appears in the sky. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, stop grovelling. It's not that. <laughs> um, it's, it's, it's really organic. Okay. It's really kind of just instinctive um, and you, you, you know, look, I know it's God because it comes so easily to me when I start writing things like that, whereas... Writing, believe it or not, comes was really difficult for me at school. And one of my children has had this struggle as well, is, is if you've got lots of ideas in your head, and some of so my students too at school, lots of ideas in your head, you don't know where to start to get them down. So you're paralysed and you can't write, you get writer's block. Yeah. Um, and often it's because how do I sequence my ideas? So I've always struggled with that. But when I'm writing something for God, it's just effortless. Mm. And you feel kind of when you're finished, you just feel like it's feel like it's a really great buzz because you've learned, mm. you've journeyed along with the process of writing. Mm. Yeah, this sort of reminds me of I read a biography of Bob Dylan talking about his writing and yep. it just sort of coming to him and him mm. even saying it's like kind of not me. Sort mm. of thing. Yeah, it's really interesting. No, I think so. And that's like they say that you know Handel when he wrote the Messiah just. Mm. You know, I think his servant found him crying mm. because he'd had such a profound revelation of God while he was writing it. So, wow. And, and I suppose it worries me about a lot of art mm. that when there's an absence of beauty in art, you know, I think darkness, like when we present darkness. It's just I saw a picture book the other day trying to explain death to children and it really, 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 really disturbed me. Um, because it was death without redeem, the redeeming. It's what death is without Christ. And I think some of the art I see or the music and you're listening to these lyrics that are, are so hopeless and I thought, I think there's an absence of hope and sort of inspiration sometimes. Mm. If we did keep detaching ourselves from the source of of life and and inspiration, then our inspiration is kind of we, we're going to be dredging it up. Mm-hmm. That's, that's my concern for some yes. contemporary art. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I'd like to talk as well about your re- well. To me, it seems more recent. Maybe it's been going on, and I haven't known about it. But your refugee activism. Sure. Very. No, it's recent. It is. Yeah. Um, I was just watching TV a couple of months ago. It was it was always nagging at me, but I think we fill our lives. Our lives are so crammed and stuffed with just the stuff of life and all this stuff's going on around you. And one night I just said to my husband, we've got to do something. Like this is our watch. Mm. What will we say to our grandchildren? What did you do to stop the refugee you know, the, those poor people on Nauru, what did you do? And, and I thought, you know, we're not that removed from probably most of Germany that thought there was something going on but really didn't know about the concentration camps yeah, and yeah. thinking, you know, they probably were just so bogged down with, the, the, with life and in that case I suppose fear of totalitarianism. No one could speak out, nobody did anything mm. and I sort of thought, I don't live in that kind of world. I can say something. So I just started this sort of, it just started a little page, um, Facebook page saying, look, who's concerned about this? And like the feedback, you know, just 
people, you know, there's like a thousand people on the page. I couldn't believe it, you know. Um, you know, and someone said to me, oh, what good's that going to do? And I thought it's about, you know, like, oh, liking something on Facebook isn't going to do anything. It's like, well, actually it can because if somebody thinks about it and if, if, if it gets out there in the community that actually we're not happy, we don't know what to do, we don't know how to take this further, um, you know, between driving the kids to this exam or doing that and to have marking my papers and, and looking after sick family, if I can sort of go on and read an article and, and, and send a letter off to an MP, then at least I've done something in my limited capacity to sort of say, we don't want to be silent. We want to defend these people. So it's very low involvement. Um, I'd like to hope once I get over the HSC with the kids that I'll get really back onto it and start doing more, you know, letter writing and because it's, it is making a difference. Mm. The people, people, the politicians are seeing that people are unhappy about this. I mean, the doctors, what an example. What an example, you know. Like we're just we're not going to send those children back. Um, mm. and, and if there's a groundswell of support behind the doctors, then they're not alone and they feel bolstered and, and I mean, I just, I just think it's such a terrible, terrible tragedy. Mm. So, yeah, that's the reason. And that page, if people want to go and check it out or join it, is Border It's called Voice. Border Voice, yeah. Mm. And, and, and it's, it's just, you know, like, um, yeah, just just up to date. Like this is the latest news. This is the latest article. This is the latest you know refugee action coalition meeting. This is the latest meeting in support of doctors. Oh, because that's what I did as well. I went to a. Um, uh, I heard um, one of the doctors from Nauru speak at town hall, and my daughter and I went, and we just looked at each other and went, "What? This is Australia." Mm. Um, it just really concerned me that we can do better than this. Because everyone's so concerned about getting into power. Yeah. You know, maybe you become a politician, it's not about that. You know, what if, you know, Bill Shorten had stood up and t- taken a completely different road to Tony Abbott and said, no, we don't agree. Or, mm. you know, Malcolm Turnbull, when he came in, instead of supporting, said, actually, we're going to do a, a backflip. Um, mm. I know, I'm idealistic about that. <laughs> Ain't going to happen, I suppose, but you hope that it does, Mm -hmm. you know, like. um... Yeah. And then taking a bit of a different turn, going back to your work, do you love what you do, obviously? I do. Yeah. And I think, you know, I'm 48 now. Are you really? I know, this is good. This is where you say, oh, you don't look anything she like that. <laughs> Listeners haven't got the vision, but no, you look oh, very no. young. <laughs> oh, aren't you lovely? Um, what was it? Um, I, I, I kind of, I had a midlife crisis in my 30s. I know I did because I think I just thought things were going to go a bit differently and that I'd be doing this or I'd be doing that and and then it didn't happen and then I just I just sort of really sort of surrendered all of that to God and said, okay, what do you want me to do? And I'm absolutely convinced I'm where I'm meant to be and I'm meant to be doing what I'm doing. And um, I've got something at the back of my head that I haven't done yet, which I believe I will do, um, and which is write a book. I really want to write a book. Oh, cool. I don't know what, I don't know when. Um but I've got something in my head, but I feel like I'm being prepared for that sort of thing. Um, I feel like the journey of life is much more elemental than we think it is. I think success for me looks very different now. Um, I feel like contentment is, you know, is, is really important in like where, where you are and what you're doing and, is is that making a difference to people? Is it is it showing God's love in your limited capacity? Um, you know, the highlight of my week is a boy in one of my classes who has got Asperger's, who has not written a word and wrote a page and a half of an essay. And wow, you know, you just think that's uh, I cried. 
I was a blubbering idiot at my desk because <laughs> I thought, oh, my goodness, like I've had a part of that. Mm. And I don't mean to sound cheesy or corny. I really don't. But I, I, I just just from experience because um, we've had a bit of a tough two years as a family and I just think just, just being it's simpler. Faith is so much simpler and I think we really complicate it. We've got to pray this way. We've got to proclaim this. We've got to do that. And I just think I just want to be with Jesus. I just want to sit with Jesus. I just want to say, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do today? And if you do it, I've done it because mm. I've only got today. And so I feel that that's huge, that where I am now is, is okay. Yeah. There you go. And what does day-to-day look like for you? <laughs> Chaos. <laughs> um, oh, um, what, oh, gosh. You know, you're getting kids to school getting yourself to work, um, straightening my hair. <laughs> my hair is, um, it still thinks it's in the 80s. <laughs> it's terrible. Um, unruly, it's wild. Um, you know, so it's teaching, a day of teaching and then um, meeting friends, coming home, cooking dinner, putting loads of washing on, just just life. Mm. Hopefully, you know, spending time in here with the Lord, reading the Bible, reading a book. Watching a something funny on TV. I love watching something funny. The kids say, "Oh, mum, you always say that." Because sometimes I say, "Let's have TV dinner. Let's watch something funny." Um, uh, listening to music. I love playing music in the car as you drive along. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes really daggy eighties. Or James will get in and we'll listen to. He'll be trying to educate me into the twenty first century music scene. Um, really bizarre. But I remember taking the kids to piano lessons. And I had to sit on the veranda at the piano lessons. And in the summertime, it was really beautiful and um, daylight savings. He had that extra hour of light. And I just remember sitting there and I could hear them playing their, you know, the piano. And I just thought, this is the most perfect thing ever in the world (laughs) that I can give my kids piano lessons. So Mm. just stuff and a good glass of wine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is there a kind of, you talked quite a lot about reading the Bible, is there a key scripture or a story that's really meant something significant for you? Yes, Isaiah 40, um, those who wait upon the Lord will rise up with wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. And um, in year 10, when I was really searching, we went to I. We did an enrichment Tuesday at school and the teacher took us to see Chariots of Fire and we were really ticked off because we wanted to see Footloose. And we're going, what are these Chariots of Fire? And what's all this about? Anyway, it changed my life. That was the seed because it's about um, Eric Liddell who wouldn't run on a Sunday and was this man of faith opposite this man who was so driven by having to prove himself. And so he skips the race, doesn't run in the Olympic Games on the Sunday, goes to church and reads this scripture and it was just like something just happened to me and that has stayed my favourite scripture and I pray it. Um, I pray it specifically for when we feel emotionally drained but also physically drained because I've been diagnosed with MS and um, that's been a really interesting journey but I just trust mm. the Lord. I say if I wait upon you, I'll, you'll, I'll, I'll rise up. It doesn't matter what happens physically but if I rise up with mm. you, in my spirit, then I'm not dead. I'm not finished. This life isn't over. Um, I think yeah. a lot of people looking from the outside in find that hard to reconcile things like illness with faith. Mm. How has that been for you? Look, I think it's a topic that I've, I was really fascinated in and it's the one thing when I'm teaching because we do that with Year 10, we do the problem of pain and suffering. It is the biggest thing that keeps kids from God. Yeah. So to me, I, I'm breaking the back of it myself. Do you know, I just think, I know it's easier said than done, but I don't blame God. I don't, I just see like we're in this world that he gave us and then he gave us the most magnificent thing of choice. And when you're a parent, and you see that your kids have got that choice 
and you've done everything you can and then they're 18 and they're off into the world, that's the gift I've given them now is life with freedom of choice. And when you see that a consequence of that is that we will mess up and the fact that we're community, which means if I mess up it could have an impact on you, um, then we see why brokenness is in the world, you know, and so I don't blame God and I think, well, if, why not me? Because if it's not me, it'll be someone else. Um, but I know that in the midst of that, I know, I tell you, I because I, they first thought I had it in 2008 and that was it was a terrifying time. Then 2010 they thought again and I was I was waking up with panic attacks and that was worse to me living with anxiety was worse to me than living with the diagnosis. So when I was finally diagnosed in 2013, was it 13, 14? No, it was 13. Yeah, 13. I just said, oh, okay, fine. Got up from that table, went to school and took the debating team to a, our quarterfinal debate out at Pittwater. Mm. I rang Rich and said, yeah, yeah, I've got it. But I just feel like, see, medicine got it wrong. They kept saying no, yes, no, yes. But what had God had done in that intervening thing was, well, even if, even if you've got this, I am with you. You know, I'm with you and I'll give you all the resources. And I just remember praying, God, I just don't want this anxiety. I want to be able to cope with whatever life throws at me because I've got your peace in me. And I tell you, I'm exhibit A of the peace of Lord that passes all understanding that is so supernatural. Um, he just took that fear of it. And I just pray that he'll use it, that I stay well, that I rise up with wings like eagles, I run and not grow weary. Mm. <laughs> I walk and not be faint, like literally, mm. as, but I feel emotionally and spiritually that, you know, if worms destroy my body and my flesh, I will see God. So but it's it's mystery. It is an absolute mystery and I think Christians, if we try and explain it too much, we just lead people into disappointment that I think only God can answer some of those really deep, mysterious questions. And sometimes he doesn't answer them with an answer. He just answers them with peace. Mm. Yeah. And then I'd like to just ask you as well, like if you were to sum up your worldview, what you believe, how you see things, how would you do that? Uh, Jesus Christ is God and the creator of the heavens and the earth, that the Trinity is the most profound and beautiful model of human relationships. I mean, perichoresis is the movement of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, which means dance, and I just think that's so beautiful. They're not in competition with each other. They are complementing each other, and I just think the Bible, having read a lot of literature, Bible is incredibly profound in its meta narrative, in its overreaching story, with its connecting symbolism, and so I'd say my worldview, biblical, Jesus, um, Trinity, love, all of that together. I think that's that's the answer. That's the meaning for me. And then lastly, what do, what do you think the future looks like for you? Um, or what are your hopes? What are my hopes? Um, I would love to see my children um, healthy, happy. Um, though, you know, life's going to throw them curveballs. I hope they look, can play them. Um, resilient people of faith. That would be my greatest dream is that my children will not lose faith, that they will stay in their faith. Mm. Um, I'd love for them to find someone that I've found that absolutely loves them for who they are, so good good marriage. I'd love to be a grandmother. I just think I'd be the best grandmother ever <laughs> <laughs> because I'll spoil them rotten and then send them home. I'm not going to be disciplined granny. No, no way. I'm going to be crazy nanny. Um, I want a red fee at 500, okay? That's mm -hmm. my one materialistic thing. I don't want a Maserati or a Porsche. I want a red fee at 
with the white dashboard and I would like to get my book written something whatever it is and I'd like Richard and I to grow old together um to maybe travel maybe grow grapes in Tuscany and make fine wine (laughs) that's it Sparrows and Wildflowers is brought to you by Victory One Media and hosted by Rachel Simpson with artwork by Nicola Gibb.